You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning because we can. Because in your grace, you've revealed yourself to us in your word. You've brought us into your family. And now we can come to you with anything we need at any time. And so we do that now asking that as we study your word, that you would meet with us, that you would show us your glory and show us your beauty, that you give us strength and courage and confidence as we live life in the midst of darkness and death all around us. We trust that your spirit will work here in this room, in this time, with your word to fill in anything that I miss, to keep us from hearing what you don't want us to hear. Lord, we put our faith and our trust and our confidence in you once more as we come under your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. Once more, welcome again to River City. My name is Charlie Hogstead, and we'll be continuing our summer series uh, in the Psalms, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 27 together this morning. So if you want to turn there, go for it, Psalm 27. If you want to raise your hand, Matt and Auburn, they've got Bibles for you. They'll give you one. Um, And in these copies, you can turn to page 262. 262, you'll find Psalm 27. I love that in these series we get to hear from a lot of different people. Um, I'm uh, on the elder team here at River City, and uh, my family started attending here almost 12 years ago uh, exactly. And we made this place our home uh, because we didn't really know it at the time, but we needed to hear verse-by-verse study and exposition of God's Word. Um, That's very important to us just to hear about how God is working redemptively in a specific time, in a specific place to his people. And so we, we love that. We needed that. Um, we also at the time um, were coming out of a, a very dark season in our marriage. We needed the focuses, uh, focus and emphasis on regular community, um, being connected to one another, being known and being loved, uh, and doing that with God's people here. Um, we also wanted to be part of something that had an impact on our community uh, here in Fargo-Moorhead. So we love this location. I mean, if we think about it, we're just a few blocks from City Hall where a lot of very important elements of our life together as a, as a community are debated and uh, decided upon by uh, our community leaders. We're also just a few block, uh, blocks from Broadway, where a lot of our culture uh, as a community is defined and practiced. Um, and so we wanted to be in the mix. We wanted to see God have an impact not only on our lives and the lives of this church, but to see him continue to redeem and restore uh, the Fargo-Moorhead uh, community with the gospel. And so I think this particular space, where we are at, I think really helps with that. Um, A lot of the people that I will uh, meet for the first time on a Sunday, uh, if they're coming here for the first time, they'll mention, like, the windows. Like, yeah, I've driven by for a long time, or I walked by, and I saw you guys worshiping. And as I was preparing this week, I thought, that's pretty cool, isn't it? That we have these really nice windows. Years ago, these were not here. The the previous owners replaced the windows and put these in. Um, But we get to actually look out. We get to actually see our community, literally, uh, as well as figuratively, um, and they get to look in. There are not many churches where you can actually walk by and actually visibly see the people of God being the people of God. 
So I think that's pretty cool that we get to do that. We get to show them uh, what it's like to trust and to follow Jesus, at least uh, for a little bit on any given week. So our, our, our space reflects this reality that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And it shows us again that, like, the kingdom of God has truly come near to the people of this community. Like, literally. Right outside these doors. Now, this is just a, a, a building. This is not, uh, the church is us, the group of people here that, that gather for worship. This is just a building. It serves a purpose. But if you would, look out the windows with me just for a minute. You might have to crank your neck around, but take a look out there. And imagine with me, just for a moment, thousands upon thousands of people standing out there. And they're all looking in at us. They're all watching us worship and be the people of God. And now, imagine that they are a bit agitated. Maybe they're a little bit angry. And in my head, I imagine like some old school Frankenstein movie where all the town folk are like walking up the hill with their pitchforks and torches. Um, and they're, they're going up to this creepy old castle on top of the mountain. But if that were actually happening right now, how would you be responding in your heart? What would be going on under the surface? We'd probably be pretty scared. We'd probably be way more concerned about our physical safety, how we're going to get out of here, uh, than we would be making sure that we finish this message, or that we get into communion right, or that we sing the last couple songs. That would probably be not, uh, be not something we'd be as concerned about. Now, the first 41 psalms in the book of Psalms, they are addressing confrontation, conflict. This was something that was almost a constant part of Israel's history as a nation. Sometimes they were at war. Sometimes they found conflict um, because God was using them to judge and destroy uh, the people that were in the promised land, these evil nations that killed their babies and did all these terrible things. God was using his people as an instrument of his justice and judgment to remove them so he could plant his people firmly down in that place and be their, their God, dwell with his people. Sometimes Israel was at war with the nations because they had been disobedient. They had not been faithful to the covenant. And so God, in his faithfulness, he used the nations around them as an instrument of discipline to draw his people back to himself, to restore that relationship that he wanted with his chosen and beloved people. <clears throat> so no matter the reason, conflict, confrontation, that was something that was pretty much always on the minds of God's people and this influenced what they believe about God. This influenced what they believed about themselves. This influenced how they saw their purpose in the world. This influenced how they lived amidst all this darkness and death and destruction that was around them. But here's what I think we'll see in Psalm 27 this morning. I think we'll see God calling us as his people to be confident. To be confident. Now, if you're listening to this song originally, if you're around when it was originally written, be confident in Yahweh. Or for us, we get to be confident in Christ. But the theme is be confident. Because when God's enemies focus their attention upon God's people, God's people tend to take their attention off of God. We lose confidence in who he is, we forget who we are, and we live as though he's abandoned us, he's forsaken us. But Jesus Christ, he has dealt with God's enemies and he has defeated them in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And so by faith, we're actually adopted into his family and one day we're going to dwell with him eternally. And now, we pray and we wait with confidence. 
So we're going to break this psalm down into three parts. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to look at building confidence. In uh, verses 7 through 12, we're going to look at praying with confidence. And then 13 and 14, we're going to talk about waiting with confidence. Building confidence, praying with, conf- uh, with confidence, and waiting with confidence. So let's read Psalm 27. <clears throat> of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord that uh, will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 as we study our first point. Build confidence in Christ. Build confidence in Christ. So as David starts this psalm, he goes through this like truth-filled, rhetorical, back and forth. The Lord is my light and my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Whom shall I fear? And verse 2 shows us that he's facing these foes and these evildoers, and they're wanting to tear him apart. They are wanting to eat up his flesh. He's facing this encamped army, and so war is rising around him, but he's saying, I'm not going to fear. I'm going to be confident. And my enemies, they're the ones who are going to stumble and fall when it comes down to it. And so I just have this picture of David, like, standing in front of a mirror, putting on his armor, And in the quiet of his heart, he's just rehearsing these truths over and over again. All right, David, God's got this. Maybe he's stretching a little bit, getting his sword arm ready for some fighting. Armor up. War is here. But Yahweh, he is faithful. He is my light. He's my salvation. He's my stronghold. So let's get after it. And then right away, David is calling uh, God Yahweh. And that's where our translations that we talked about so far in this series have, have uh, LORD written in all caps. 
And so we don't really name people in this way where we tie the name of somebody to some specific element of their character, but this was a pretty normal practice in Hebrew. Um, the names were meant to be more of a direct reflection or, or uh, an explanation of uh, one's character. And so Yahweh was used to describe the faithfulness of God, the Lord of the covenant, the promise-keeping God. He is faithful to his promises, and he is faithful to his people. And so David is addressing this covenant-keeping God and rehearsing these specific truths, light, salvation, stronghold, to confirm in his heart that God is indeed faithful. He's getting more specific about why he can call God Yahweh. Yahweh is David's light. And this is the only place in the Old Testament where, they actually, where it's actually God is light. Now, Jesus is light. We talk a lot about that in the New Testament in John, but this is the only place in the Old Testament where they refer to God specifically as light. And what David is getting at here is God is his source of life and joy in the midst of darkness and death. It shows God is pure and holy. And David is reminding himself that God is the creator and the sustainer of life. He's the only source of joy and holiness. Yahweh is David's light. Yahweh is David's salvation. And David saw God act on his behalf so many times. So many times God proved himself to be his rescuer, his savior, his salvation. Starting with Goliath, when David trusted God and fought against God's enemies that were threatening the safety and the security and the very identity of God's people. And so God had fought for David over and over and over again. So, God, so David could say with clarity and with conviction, Yahweh is my salvation. And God is David's stronghold his refuge, his place of safety and security. Because again, God not only saw, or David not only saw God protect him or, or save him over and over again, David saw God protect him. I mean, the, the king, Saul, was trying to kill David. And yet God over and over and over again protected David from his enemies. So Yahweh is faithful to David as his light, as his salvation, as his stronghold. And so theologian John Calvin, he calls this a threefold shield that David uses to battle those inner fears that he has as he faces his outward enemies. So in other words, what David is telling himself is there is not one person, there is not one army on the face of this planet that I should fear. He's telling himself because God is faithful. God is faithful and so therefore fear of any enemy is irrational. In God's kingdom, fear makes no sense. Fear itself is irrational. But even now, as God's people, we have fears, and they make total sense. When we get exposed as the people of God, and when those around us find out who we truly are, there's that little moment of like, how are they going to respond? When I start talking about my faith, or when I start talking about somebody else's faith, or maybe when I bring it up with my, my team at work about what I did this weekend. I preached a sermon. How are they going to respond? There's that, there's that moment of like, I don't know what's going to happen right now. Because just by being who I am, there's this little threat. There's this little, there's this little difference between who I am and who you are and who you think I am. 
A young man in our community group was actually told recently that he can no longer talk to his cousin about the gospel. So we fear often what we stand to lose when we express our identity as followers of Christ. Amidst those who, in our community, they are fighting so hard to forge their own identities. They're fighting so hard to make sense of life apart from Christ and apart from his word. But we still stand to lose something. It might be a friendship, it might be a job, it might be a promotion. And parts of the world today, it very well could mean your life. Getting up and going to worship with God's people might be a choice of like, I don't know what's going to happen today. I'm still going to go. That's a reality that some in God's kingdom even face now. But what do you stand to lose as people find out who we really are, as people see that we are worshipers of the one true God? So how do we take these very rational fears, focused on what we could lose, and actually flip them and turn them into opportunities? I think that's what David is helping us to do here. How do we take the threat of losing something precious and important to us and turn it into an opportunity to see God enjoyed and worshipped for who he is? How do we take up those threefold shields? God is our light. He's our salvation. He's our stronghold. And walk out these doors into a world that needs Jesus. How do we do that? I think David is going to help us a bit. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Not only was David's confidence informed by all those experiences he had with God saving him, God protecting him, David cultivated confidence through regular study and meditation upon who his God is. As we can see in verses uh, 4 in particular, David desperately, 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 desperately wanted to be in and experience the presence of God. That was of utmost value and importance to him. Dwelling with Yahweh. I want to dwell in the house of my God every single day. I want to gaze upon his beauty. I want to meditate and inquire in his temple. Now this faithfulness of God, it's best expressed in his presence among his people. And David saw that as the best possible thing he could ever have and never lose. For a large part of Israel's history, God dwelt with his people in a tent that was mobile. It's called a tabernacle. And David, he wanted to build an actual temple, um, a more permanent residence for God where he would forever dwell with his people. And now this would not happen until David's son Solomon would build it, but it was David's idea and God was starting to forge the way for this to happen. But David knew that God's presence among his people brought life and it brought joy and it brought salvation and it brought protection. All the things that he started with in this psalm. David wanted to be with God, to know God, to study God, to worship God for who he is and he wanted to focus his eyes and his heart upon the goodness and glory of Yahweh all the time. So as much as I love these, these windows, they are, the most, uh, they, are, they are the weakest part of this structure. I know some, there's some I-beams up there, um, but when it rains, sometimes it leaks. Just a heads up for you guys sitting over there on the south side on a rainy Sunday. But they're the weakest part of our structure. And in the riot of 2020, um, that started just a few blocks away here, the police slowly but surely moved people out of the downtown area, and by 1 a.m., there was one person left rioting 
and she was right out here on 4th. And she was, uh, the live stream was going, and around 1 a.m. they cut off the live stream. And so couldn't see what was going on. After that, at some point, somebody threw these two rocks through two of those windows over there and, and broke them pretty good. We found out the next day. So these windows, they are not the strongest part of this building. But if instead of cranking your necks to look outside, let's turn our necks and look inside. Look at these pillars. One, two, three, four, five, six, and I think there are a couple more that we can't see right over there. There's two more over there? Plus the staircase. Yeah. Nine pillars, give or take. Yeah. Like, these bricks are not going to take those pillars down. You're going to need way more than these suckers. And I think uh, they're they're made of uh, reinforced concrete, and the original owners of the building told us that we could fit a Sherman tank on the second floor uh, of this place. And I looked it up, uh, a Sherman tank, it was used in World War II. Um, they weighed upwards of 84,000 pounds. Um, and so that's the equivalent of like four to 500 people, something like that. Um, it's also about 336,000 quarter pounders with cheese. <laughs> Somewhere in there. But I mean, look at them. Based on how stout those pillars are, we could probably fit a couple Sherman tanks on the second floor. That would be an awesome kids' ministry when we get that (laughs) figured out. But David learned from experience that you don't always have to look out the windows. The enemies are out there, but you need to have that time of turning your head around, turning your heart around, and looking at the character and nature of God, looking at the strength of his character. As long as God was with his people... Nothing could take them down. Nothing could destroy them. And when God was with his people, look at verse 5. He's going to hide me in his shelter. He's going to conceal me under the cover of his tent. He's going to lift me high on the rock. They're hidden. They are concealed. They're going to offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. They're going to sing and they're going to make melody to the Lord. The presence of God amidst his people was the source of their strength in the midst of the darkness and the death around them. And it was a reminder that God was not going to forget them. He was not going to abandon them, but he was going to dwell with them. And so when we come on Sunday morning, again, this is just a building, but we are coming to the living God, who is our light, who is our strength, who is our salvation, who is our stronghold. When we sit down with our Bibles, and our notebooks, and we meditate, like David says, when he inquires or meditates in his temple, when we take that time, we are cultivating confidence in the character and nature of God. That's why we do that. That's why it's an important practice on Sundays. It's an important practice in your personal lives as well. We're cultivating faith. We're looking at what God has done in the past and then exercising faith that he will continue to do those same things into the future for us as his chosen people. Colossians 3, uh, verses 1 and 2, they say this, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So Jesus Christ, he came and lived among us. He came and tabernacled among us. But now, now, 
The Lord Jesus reigns victoriously. He is sitting at God's right hand because he has earned victory over sin, over Satan, and over death. And so these things no longer have hold over us. In his life, Jesus never gave into his enemies or the enemies of, of God, but he always stood up to them. And yet on the cross, even though he is completely innocent in every way on the cross, he took upon himself all of God's wrath for our sin, thereby taking away from Satan any power or any, any, any leverage, anything he can use against us to accuse us. Jesus took all that away on the cross. Satan has nothing anymore, nothing with which he can accuse us. And in his resurrection, Jesus triumphed over our, our biggest and our final enemy, which is death. And so like David, we can say he is our light because he is the source of our new and eternal life. He is our salvation because he lived and died and rose again for us. He's rescued us from the consequences of our sin. And he is our protection. He is our stronghold. He is the cornerstone of this new temple that is being built, and that's the church. That's the people of God who trust him by faith. He is our cornerstone. He is the rock upon which we found our lives. And his gospel is the pillar that we look to when we are facing death and destruction and darkness all around us. And so, we seek the things that are above. We set our minds on the things that are above. We gaze upon, like David, the goodness and the glory of Yahweh. And we build this, this inner confidence, this inner strength. We deepen our trust in Jesus when everything around us is trying to wash that away, is trying to erode it. But it's hard. It's hard because right out here, right outside these windows, like that is life. That is real. That is, that is the agitation of God's enemies. That's where their annoyance and their frustration with who we are because we're God's people is expressed and we, have to, we, we live in that. Satan still tries to accuse us even though he's got nothing. And so it's hard to turn away from looking out those windows and to turn our hearts and to look at the character and the nature of our faithful God. And so, why is it hard for you? What makes that turn difficult? What do you stand to lose or what fear comes into your heart first? Or maybe where do you feel abandoned by God? Where do you feel like you can't even have this wrestle in the first place because where is he? Instead, what would it look like for you to, like David, put on the armor of God to grab that threefold shield and say, light, salvation, stronghold. Let's do this. What does that look like for you? Thankfully, David gives us a couple, a couple ideas uh, here as we continue on in the psalm. Uh, our second point, David shows us what prayer with confidence looks like. So point two, pray with confidence. Let's look at verses 7 through 12. As David cultivated this inner confidence in God's faithfulness, it started to overflow and to spill out of him in prayer. Because he had this life and he had salvation and he had protection and he believed that God's presence was the best thing that he could ever have, David prayed. Or more accurately, based on the, the, the Hebrew, he, he cried out or he called out to his faithful God. He's like, hear me. He's like screaming these things. Be gracious to me. Answer me. If we were surrounded by a bunch of angry crowds, I'm sure somebody in this room would want to dial 911. That'd probably be a good idea. But this is David, 
having cultivated this confidence in God, he is picking up the phone and he's calling 911, Lord, I need you. He's making that call to his father, knowing that he's going to get an answer and he's going to get a response. He says, as we get into eight and nine, don't turn away from me and don't cast me off. Don't forsake me. Your face, O Lord, do I seek, so don't hide it from me. So as David gazes upon his God, he's asking his God to keep his gaze upon himself, upon David. Seeing God's face, having God look at you, is the best part of being in the presence of God. The idea that God sees his people, that he knows what they're facing, that he knows what we need, was a very, very comforting idea to God's people. Going all the way back to the Exodus, when they were enslaved in Egypt, and God heard their cries, he saw their, their, their enslavement, and he knew. It says he knew. And then he acted powerfully to redeem them. And so you may have heard this phrase before, Coram Deo. It's Latin, and it means before the face of God. Before the face of God. It's this idea that as God's people, we're living all of our lives right in front of him. He sees us. He knows us. He doesn't get distracted by anything. He's not surprised that, oh my goodness, where'd these enemies come from? But he's paying attention. And he's got this warmth, this fatherly kindness towards his people. And I think we can take that for granted. And my wife and my daughter were at uh, camp this past week for about five days. And while they were gone, my wife texted me a couple things, a couple pictures. Um, but what I really liked was when my daughter FaceTimed me um, from camp. And she spent about 20 minutes with the phone showing me, you know, the, um, uh, the, the swing set and the playground and all the stuff that she was playing on. And then she ran inside with the phone, you know, going crazy. She ran inside up the stairs to the bunkhouse where they were sleeping, showed me how she set up her bed, um, showed me the mess of the room that all the other um, people had uh, made. Um, she told me what they ate. They had ate, uh, eaten chicken chunks and mac and cheese um, that day. And uh, she told me about the friends she had met, uh, how she's going to actually leave that bunkhouse and go to a different one because she met some friends and she's going to spend some time with them. Um, but I wasn't there. I wasn't with them. But I got to see it. I got to experience it just a little bit. She got to see me laughing at her silly stories. I got to see her really enjoy this time uh, with her mom, with these kids that she had just met. But we had more than just a picture on a phone, more than just a text message, more than a phone call. We had that face-to-face time where we could actually lock eyes and laugh together and uh, be thankful for what she was uh, experiencing there. And so David is praying for this depth of connection with his God, for their eyes to be locked and for that favor and that warmth and that kindness to be present in David's life when he was only surrounded by darkness and death. When the sovereign God of all creation who fights for his people, who knows and loves his people, is looking at you and who is kind to you and is in your corner, then you know you are in a pretty good spot. And that's what David wanted. He even includes this little uh, lament about his father and his mother forsaking him. Uh, But we don't really see anything in scripture about his dad uh, kicking him out of the house for any reason. Like, David, you're running around killing all these enemies of God. Like, why don't you get a good job, eight to five? you know, some benefits, um, but you got to be out by Friday. Like, we don't see that. And so scholars are, are saying that what David is doing is he's comparing earthly scholars or earthly parents to his heavenly father and saying that no 
earthly parent can even compare to how loving and kind and gracious his heavenly father is. In comparison with God, it's like our parents just forsake us and don't care. And today is today's Father's Day, so even if you woke up with a steaming hot cup of coffee that said World Greatest Dad on the mug, like, you're still not as good of a dad as our Father in Heaven is, no matter what your mug says. That's what David is getting at here. And so David is praying to his father with confidence. He's, he's overflowing with confidence that his God, his father, is looking at him, that his God is paying attention, that he's not aloof, he's not adrift, but he is there, he is present with his kids. And so the degree to which we pray shows the degree to which we are confident in God's salvation, in his stronghold, and in his light, in who he is. And so if we don't pick up the phone, if we don't make that 911 call, we must not see how surrounded we are by death and destruction. So if you're struggling with prayer, maybe you're a bit too confident in your own ability to do life on your own. Or if you're struggling with prayer, maybe you are not confident in God's willingness and his ability to care for you and to protect you. If you're struggling with prayer, Maybe it's because no one around you knows that you're a citizen of a different kingdom because you're not facing that death. You're not facing that destruction for who you are. So we have to ask that question, am I confident enough in Christ to put on that armor, to go out into the workplace, into the neighborhood, into the dorm room, wherever, and be who I am in Christ and to show that I'm a citizen of a different place? that definitely, definitely, definitely puts me in a position where I need to pray with confidence that God is my light, my salvation, and my stronghold. But where we struggle to pray, Jesus always succeeded. He would take time away by himself. He would go pray to his father on his own. He was dependent upon his father. He had a close and intimate relationship while he was here on our behalf with his dad. But even at that, because he loved us so much, He went to the cross where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we could be adopted, so we could be taken into the family of God. And now, because of that, we have direct access to God the Father so we can pray with confidence. We can run right up to the throne of grace. We don't even need a phone. We don't need FaceTime. We can just go right to him and say, Lord, I need you. Help me. So we cry out to him, We make that 911 call because we are surrounded by death and destruction. God's enemies, when they find out who we are, when they focus their attention upon us, we are prone to taking our attention off of God. But David is saying, no, we can go right to him, right to the source of salvation and light and protection. And we can know that this darkness that we face now is temporary. That leads us into our last point, looking at verses 13 and 14, where we wait with confidence. We wait with confidence. Here, David is expressing confidence that God is going to answer his prayers and that his presence is going to be experienced at some point. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, is what he says in verse 13. David trusted that even though there was an army encamped against him and that war was his reality, he was still going to experience the glory and goodness of God at some point 
in his lifetime. He trusted that the God who had been faithful in the past was going to be faithful in the future, and I'm going to be with him at some point. And through David, again, God was paving the way for an extended period of peace and prosperity when God would dwell with his people and there would be true rest. Now, David's son Solomon, he became king over Israel, and he says this in 1 Kings 5, verses 3 and 4. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. So victory came. It was hard. The Lord won victory for his people. But now the Lord, my God, Solomon says, has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So for the people of God, that would have been pretty crazy. Deep breath. Okay. Neither adversary nor misfortune. Solomon built this temple and God's presence rested there and it gave God's people rest as well. In, da- in verse 13, David is saying, I'm, I'm looking down the road. I am trusting that God's going to be faithful in the future like he's been in the past. God's presence and all that it brings with it gives us confidence to endure. We will experience God's goodness in this life to some degree, despite all the death and destruction that we're surrounded with. And then he adds this exhortation in verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. And again, wait for the Lord. In some respects, that's a reality for God's people as well. They've always been waiters. Not the kind of people that bring you food, but like the people that wait. They're always waiting for something, or more specifically, they're always waiting for someone. And we don't like waiting. Everything around us says that waiting for what we need or what we want is absolutely unacceptable. The red lights, they last too long. That flight to Minneapolis is a whole 38 minutes. Um, We have to wait five seconds before we can skip the ad. Like, yeah, yeah. But God's people wait. That's what we do. And in that waiting, we can start to feel like God's abandoned us. We can be overwhelmed by the darkness around us, and we can feel like we've been forsaken, and that becomes a pretty terrible experience. But what David is calling us to, this overflow of confidence says that we can be strong, that our hearts can take courage as we exit the doors of this place and head back into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, wherever. And rather than being fearful of God's enemies, we can be fearful for God's enemies. We were once enemies of God. We were out in that crowd. We were agitated and angry. Yet in his mercy, he didn't hold that against us. And instead, what he did was he forgave us, he cleansed us, and he made us righteous. He made us upstanding citizens of his kingdom. That's the gospel. God adopting his enemies into his very own family. We haven't been abandoned. We haven't been forsaken, even though we deserved it. God now dwells in us by his Holy Spirit, and that is the guarantee that he's never, ever, ever going to let us go. Because God is for us, and so who can stand against us? We are the sheep of his pasture. We hear his voice, and so we follow him. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nobody. Not even one. So rather than looking out these windows with fear, we can start to plead for people to come on in. 
please join us. Because the wrath that we face as enemies of God is nothing in comparison with what they'll face when they stand before him. Naked and exposed, with no forgiveness, with no righteousness to stand on. They're going to try to come up with something. And Jesus himself will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. That right there, Matthew 7, destroyed me when I read that, when I got saved years ago. Destroyed me. So if that's you today, if you're standing on your own goodness, your own righteousness, then we plead with you, look to Christ. Look to Christ who is Lord and who is Savior and who is merciful and who is kind. You're living life in front of him already. But he offers you grace and mercy and redemption. So join us, not just in this place, partly in this place, but join us as citizens of the kingdom. Ultimately, we wait with confidence for that time when Jesus returns and when he dwells with us eternally. And again, looking at Colossians 3, we've been in there a lot this morning. This time we're going to look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so waiting is not an option for us because we don't know when he's going to come back. But we can stop waiting with anxiety and with fear and we can start waiting with confidence knowing that God's faithfulness remains no matter what's going on outside these windows, no matter what's going on inside of our hearts, he remains faithful to his promises and he remains faithful to his people. He will be our God, we will be his people, and there will be rest on all sides. No adversaries, no misfortune, only the glory and the joy of God's presence. Lord Jesus, come back soon. Let's pray. Father God, we, again, are thankful that we can call you Father, that we can come right up to you with all of our needs, and you already know them. So Lord, we ask again today for confidence and strength in who you are, that we would take up that shield of you being our light, being our salvation, and being our stronghold, that we would pray with confidence, that we would wait with confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. And so as we go from here this morning, work in us, give us joy and give us peace and protect us as we show the world what it's like to worship you. So guide us now in this time, bring about conviction of sin, bring about comfort and peace and joy through Christ and change us more and more into his image now. In Jesus' name, amen.